Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and co-sponsored by the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights, and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this conversation, Jay is joined by Patricia Adams Farmer, one of the most influential writers for popular audiences in the international process community. Known for the way she integrates storytelling and poetry with wisdom from Whitehead and other process thinkers, she is the author of five books and numerous essays inspired by process theology and philosophy. A featured writer on Open Horizons and co-writer of a blog called Process Musings in Spirituality and Practice, she holds an undergraduate degree in music and three master's degrees in theology, philosophy, and education. She lives with her husband, Ron Farmer, a New Testament scholar, in Millersburg, Missouri, where she serves as a pastor for a small Disciples of Christ church. Well, Patricia, it's so great to be with you today. Uh, you are so well known in the entire process community as one of our best, sometimes I think our very best writer. And your writing is so accessible, so meaningful, so satisfying to many. Uh, and that includes me. So it makes me wonder, uh, how in the world did you get interested in process thought in the first place? Would you begin by just telling us a little bit of your story? How you sure. discovered process? Yeah. Well, thank you, Jay. I'm just so happy to be here with you. Um, I uh, Let me tell you my, my story. Um, as a young seminary student, I was on a serious quest for a God that I could believe in. And that is a God I can worship and love in the face of the daunting problem of evil and suffering. And as a young person, I was really sensitive to the suffering in the world. Um, the Vietnam War had just ended and with so many sorrowful stories, you know, and pictures of hungry suffering children in Africa haunted me. I, I learned in school about the atrocities of World War II, about the Holocaust. I was a big fan of Anne Frank and, and had recently discovered that my great grandfather Schwartz was a Jew who fled Austria with his family because of anti-Semitism in the late 1880s. So I had a great personal feeling for all of this. And so where was God? You know, I asked, and God was supposed to be all powerful and all good at the same time. So in seminary, none of the classic theodicies spoke to me. None of them that were, you know, that were meant to get God off the hook. None of them made me like God one iota more. So, so this was the situation. Um, I was unsatisfied. I was an, I became an agnostic. And I found, I found myself in a spiritual crisis. And so after seminary, I entered the graduate program in philosophy at the University of Missouri, which is close to where I live right now. And I continued my quest. And there, uh, the big questions were met and attacked head on. Questions like mine, when I asked a professor something, you know, how could this God who could stop the Holocaust choose not to. 
And what kind of an immoral monster God is that? And he thought it was a pretty good question. And uh, philosophy gave me that permission to ask impertinent questions and while giving me the critical thinking skills I needed to, to work and wrestle with them. And this, Jay, was no idle pastime because the stakes were high. I felt called to the ministry, but who would want a minister who hates God? <laughs> so, um, well, one day, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Kulchin, he gave me a copy of a journal article by the great process philosopher, Charles Hartshorn. And this led me to more books on process philosophy and theology. And then, oh, when I finally got a hold of John Cobb and David Griffin's book, Process Theology and Introductory Exposition, I just felt my, the light in my soul return. I, I was on a new path that just opened up for me. It was like Meister Eckhart's path that is beautiful and, and joyful and pleasant and familiar. Um, I, I just fell in love with God all over again. But this time, it wasn't the old God of the philosophers but rather the God who quests for beauty and whose very definition is love. And so I let go of this, this former image of the all-powerful monarch in the sky who intervenes now and then. Um, but this new understanding of God uh, was in Whitehead's words, uh, the great companion, the fellow sufferer who understands. And so like any new convert, I was hyper-enthusiastic about this new discovery, and I was able to return to my faith and my call to ministry, and I introduced my husband to process theology, and he ended up writing a very important book on process hermeneutics, um, and later, we ended up in California, not too far from Claremont School of Theology, and so I was able to interact with the great John Cobb and the great David Griffin and the great Marjorie Suhaki. And later, the great Jay McDaniel and the great Bruce Epperly and, and so many others. And so, and then I joined the Process and Faith Steering Committee and became a part of that group for years and began writing for the magazine, Creative Transformation. And then I just kept writing and um, I haven't stopped yet. You, you really haven't stopped. <clears throat> now, you're a pastor as well as a thinker. And sometimes process thought is criticized for being way too abstract um, and unpreachable. I've heard more than a few clergy say nice ideas, but unpreachable. Do you find process thought preachable and how does it go over with uh, parishioners in Missouri? In <laughs> Missouri, that's where you are. That's where I am. I don't, I don't use the language of, of Whitehead in my sermons or, uh, but I have found that it, it works extraordinarily well because, well, telling the stories of Jesus is the natural way into preaching about the process God, a loving God, a vulnerable God, a mm -hmm. suffering God. Ah, what could be better? Um, mm -hmm. I simply preach the words of 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And that's the theme of every single sermon. It's just spun out in different ways, whatever, you know, scripture, lectionary passage there is. But the very notion that God is our great companion, the fellow sufferer who understands, if that doesn't preach, 
I don't know what does. Mm -hmm. Does it preach to tell people, um, but God's not all powerful? Uh, I, but there's some, there's, there's, um, you probably don't put it that way. Uh, don't put it quite that way. Work when, 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 yeah, just tell me about that. How does that side of it work? I'm really not afraid of that. I don't think, I don't think they would mind that. God is, it's just, um, I put it um, in, yeah, different terms. But mm-hmm. I just say God, it's the power of love, not the power of coercion. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, I just, of course, I haven't done a study with them on that. And if we got down to it. Some might disagree, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I use the language that I think is the most pastoral and helpful in my sermons. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. one, one side of your life that so many people appreciate is that you're a, you really are a writer, uh, and you're a poet, and you love metaphors. And you love stories, and you've written novels, and I, I must say that you you write process theology in a way that is really fresh, and that some people yearn for, and sometimes can't find elsewhere. I think there are others that do what you do, but you do what you do very well. Uh, so, how does process thought fit in with your life as a as a writer? Do you think of yourself? Uh, first and foremost, as a theologian, or as a novelist, or both, or none. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Well, I, 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 I just think of myself as a theological writer, and however that, however that comes out, it comes out. Um, I think you know, in process thought, as you know, as we all know, creativity and process thought is the category of the ultimate with the one and the many. And so it, it certainly speaks to the creative soul just in itself. And one of my one of my spiritual companions um, through the years uh, has been Vincent Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. And he had this image of God as the struggling artist. And I find that really compelling. And God is not, you know, God is not love in a static sense, but in a creative sense. God is as Cobb and Griffin say in their book, God is creative love. God is creative, responsive love. That's how they define God in that book I just mentioned, creative, responsive love. And I love that word creative that they used. And we often don't hear that as much anymore in in process thought. But I want to return to that over and over, creative, responsive love. And as, as a creative writer, I see myself as, part of that creative adventure in the world you know whether it's a story unfolding in time or or creative essay or even a theology book i feel grateful as a, as a creative human being to be just a tiny minuscule part of that creative divine becoming and i realize that all inspiration comes from the mind of god and that God is the source of all novelty in the universe. And I just try to be open to that novelty, to God's creative subjective aim um, by keeping my heart and mind open and by taking risks like God, who took this huge risk in creating out of chaos through the long painful process of evolution and not knowing how things are gonna turn out um, but the process of creation out of love is 
worth the risk. And all of us in the creative world feel that way, or we have to come to terms with that at some point. Although I sometimes wonder you know, if God regrets creating human beings, uh, since we pretty much you know, made a mess of the rest of creation. So, so, um, so yes, process thought just really spurs my creativity. Now you've written a book called um, The Metaphor Maker, is that right? Yes, yes, that's my first novel. Can you tell us how you came to write that book? Oh, well, you know, I had just published a book with, <laughs> I had just published a book with Channels Press, Embracing a Beautiful God, and I was going to do another one, but they changed the, they changed who was doing the um, editing, and they didn't want what I had recommended, and I was so put out by that, and and my husband said, well, you know, you've always wanted to write a novel, why don't you take this opportunity and do that, and so I thought, okay, and well, I've always been just really interested in the year 1968. So I, I, and I love historical fiction. So I went back and started living in 1968 and researching. And um, it had all the components for dealing with evil and suffering, which, as I mentioned, is what brought me to process thought. I really wanted to deal with the evil and suffering going on, the Vietnam War and the, you know, the death of, of ammo. MLK and RFK. Um, I just really wanted to do that and present the process view of God in that. And um, it was just a lot of fun. I just really enjoyed it. I mean, there's nothing better than reading stories than writing stories. You know, it's even better than reading stories. So I hope to someday return to that um, story writing. Yeah. I have. Uh I know some theologians, actually, I don't know the theologians. I'm going to pretend that I know some theologians that think that everything needs to be literally true and mm. that um, the language we use needs to be uh, somewhat prosaic mm -hmm. so that it matches the way reality actually is. Yeah. And so when I read your material, and, and actually just your, your love of metaphors, but also your love of narrative, it, it seems to me you're coming from a different place. Now it's a place that I like, but, but it's not a place that's preoccupied with literal language representing literal facts. Mm. And, um, and so, well, in I fact, in my book, uh, a, a metaphor maker, and if God's yeah. a metaphor maker, you okay. are too. So, <laughs> well, would you like to say a word about the role of metaphor in, in your in your life? Yeah, well, uh, in the book, the metaphor maker, the main protagonist, Madeline Prescott, is searching mm -hmm. for a metaphor to live by, mm -hmm. and I think that's been my life as well. That's been my journey seeking. A metaphor to live by and so um that's why um and all we have you know really is metaphors we don't know exactly what god is like but we but we but we seek to know through metaphors and i feel that metaphor embraces the whole person the whole the feeling as well as the mind and so as a feeling person 
um, the idea of metaphor through, you know, reading poetry or um, just writing my own poetry, whatever, it, it, it um, enlivens the mind in a way that you cannot do with just regular conceptual language. Um, you can't do it with scientific language or uh, some of the traditional process languages. So imp- it's also important, though. I mean, all this language that I don't use, I rely upon. I mean, it's all good. It's just there are different ways of expressing it. And I wanted to do it in a different way. Yeah, in a way that's more feeling oriented and metaphor oriented. Yeah. Uh, when I was, I took uh, Whitehead under John Cobb years ago in seminary. Uh-huh. We were reading Process and Reality and, and so many of, of us students were, were, oh yes, this must really be true. And, you know, we, we found ourselves uh, gravitating toward the, the literal truth of process and reality. And, and then we got to the concept of God and, oh yes, there must be a primordial nature of God. And yes, there must be a consequent nature. And yes, there must be a superjective nature. And I can picture us there. And one day John came in, John Cobb came in and he just casually noted, yes, um, God may be something like this. And, and when he said that, I remember a kind of shift in our perspective. What do you mean something like this? <laughs> we had been so affixed to the language as, no, this is it. This is it. And so that's one reason I appreciate it. Oh, it is. It's, and about. I love how Whitehead is so humble about his mm-hmm. own work, you know, mm-hmm. and that you know, and that's that's what we're lacking so much of today is that humility. But um, but yes, his works, I, I, he is so, he might, it has all this wonderful poetic language, God mm-hmm. being the poet of the world. And, you know, that really drew me in. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find it elsewhere in process writings. So I just uh, jumped in and said, Whitehead, <laughs> I am going to take this part of you and just develop it. I hope it's okay. <laughs> well, um, let's turn then to beauty. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, Plato says there's three great virtues, truth, goodness, and beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of process theologians have picked up on truth. A lot of Protestant Christians and and Jews and others who are ethically interested pick up on goodness, but you have lifted up beauty as as a kind of central ideal uh, for how we can live and what process thought is about. And you've just written a book, Mm -hmm. a a great book, Beauty and Process in Theology. Would Would you tell us a little about the book and then speak to beauty? Speak to beauty. Sure. Um... Well, as you know, Jay, you know more than anyone that my focus on beauty is the dominant thread that weaves through all of my books and essays to date. Um, Now, the one I just finished, Beauty and Process Theology, A Journey of Transformation, it's a short theology of beauty from a process perspective. It's part of this short book series with Energy on Press, and Bruce Everly has written several in the series, and I'm looking forward to reading the book by you and John Cobb uh, in this series. So so I feel honored to be part of it. And so my contribution is Beauty and Process Theology. And I like to think of this book as an introduction to process theology through the eyes of beauty. 
And I don't think anyone has ever done that before. And this is the first time that I dared to venture away from the essay or the novel, just to, to just writing straight out theology, chapter by chapter. But as you know, I do it in a theopoetical style. So still lots of metaphor going on there. And I hope it will offer a new entryway into process theology. So it's a small book with big ideas. And in the first chapter, The Dream of Beauty, I define beauty from a process perspective. And then in chapter two, I describe a beautiful God, or as Whitehead says, the poet of the world. And the rest of the chapters include the art of beauty, soul beauty, tragic beauty, beauty and creative transformation, moral beauty, and natural beauty, and beauty and hope. And you know, one of the hope is very important theme throughout there, and one of the underlying mo motifs from the beginning to the end of the book is this idea of beauty as a plank amid the waves of the sea. And that's a quote from St. Augustine. And I, I like to just imagine him, this bearded monk, <laughs> Augustine, clinging to a plank where survival as the waves go over him. Well, in the introduction, I state this. I say, from the perspective of process theology, the experience of beauty not only offers life-saving rescue from the storms of life, but also serves as a glimpse into the very nature of God and the world. Writing this book during the coronavirus quarantine offers a new meaning to the phrase waves of the sea, as waves of the virus keep sweeping across the globe, ravaging lives and livelihoods. And this new catastrophe layered atop systemic racism, economic injustice, and ex the existential threat of climate change catapults Augustine's words into a new world on the brink of drowning. So how can beauty be a plank against such waves? How is beauty relevant in such times as these? And what part does beauty play in the transformation of our exhausted and beleaguered world? And how can beauty tend to our aching souls in this time of crisis on every front? And these are some of the questions I address in this short theology of beauty. And it's inspired by process theology, scripture, experience, and in loving companionship with poets, philosophers, artists, mystics, musicians, and the mother of all teachers, nature herself. And that's the inter a little, just an excerpt from the introduction to give you an idea of the book. And thank you for writing a, a nice review of that at Open Horizons. I really mm -hmm. appreciate that. I'm, I'm, really... Glad you, I'm glad you picked up on the blanket amid the waves because it's oh, a yeah. powerful metaphor I use all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm holding on to that plank. <laughs> <laughs> we are. These are traumatic times, Jay. We've got to hold on. You know, one thing that I like about your book, among many, is I like the uh, chapter headings. So they name dimensions of beauty that might be forgotten. So l let me refresh myself. There's natural beauty, uh -huh. tragic beauty, uh -huh. moral beauty. Uh -huh. that would, be, would that be compassion? Would that be a form of moral beauty? Yeah, well, moral beauty would be compassion and justice and, mm -hmm. you know, all of those things. Yes, it's so important, moral beauty. 
it's one of the most important chapters and often yeah. forgotten, really often forgotten. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, there's also soul beauty. Soul beauty. And, yeah. And the like, art of beauty in which I talk about, you know, your traditional ideas of beauty and art and that kind of thing. So what is, what is soul beauty? Well, soul beauty, I'm glad you asked, um, is actually um, part of the fat soul concept. In other words, a fat soul is a beautiful soul. A beautiful soul is a fat soul. And um, would you like me to just talk a little bit about that? Why don't you? Okay. Yeah. yeah you, um, well, I know that uh, you and I have both been working with that idea of fat soul. And for me, the concept of fat soul sprang from the process philosopher Bernard Loomer. Mm-hmm. And when I read his iconic essay called Size is the mm-hmm. Measure, you know, size being in all caps with hyphens between each letter, well, it grabbed my attention. And it was another of those epiphany moments that I often have with books. I remember where I was, the room I was in, and, you know, the very, how, just everything about that when I discovered this. Well, by size, he was talking about the size of the soul. That is what you're able to take in, to include. And it means, you know, the generosity of spirit and spaciousness for new ideas and for people that others exclude. And in his public lectures, Bernard Loomer used to always toss out this question, how big is your soul? How big is your soul? And this was his theme, his mantra, and and, you know, it was contagious. And my own method of carrying on his mantra was not with capital letters, but by changing the word big to fat. And it carries the same whimsical tone, but with a very serious meaning. And, you know, I was just moved so much by Rabbi Artson's interview with you recently when he talked about, well, the whole thing, of course, but when he talked about his first encounter with John Cobb, uh, first on the phone and then in person. And Rabbi Artson described Cobb's, you know, generous spirit and his kindness and his openness. And I totally agree. Cobb is the quintessential fat soul. And um, here he is, this physically, I got to think of his soul is you know, physically a very small person who has this enormous, gigantic soul that has touched lives all over the planet. And he has a beautiful soul. And so a fat soul is a beautiful soul. Uh, it's, it's beautiful because we describe beauty, and I do this in the book um, at the very beginning, uh, as Whitehead is condensing Whitehead's view as intense harmony. Uh, beauty is intense harmony. And if we do that, then, then we see that the fat soul invites us to include those who are different. And we open our minds to fresh ideas and we allow for the intensity of differences and contrasts and contrasts of contrasts within the larger harmony. And that is beauty. So the opposite of this, though, is the thin soul, the razor sharp black and white thinking of the fundamentalist or the closed mind or the ungenerous spirit, the ego centered person, which I now call the skinny eye, the skinny eye. Um, We is a much plumper and wider and more inclusive word. So 
So the thin soul is impoverished, the impoverished soul, and it doesn't apply only to humans, but to nations too. I'd like to think in the other day, you know, we're living at a time when nationalism is rearing its ugly head and we, you know, should be expanding our national soul if we apply that soul to the nation. We really should be expanding to include what Whitehead calls world loyalty. But we are not doing that right now. So um, that's very sad. But anyway, that's the fat soul idea. Um, one dimension of Bernard Loomer's description yeah. of, of a soul with size. Yeah. Is that it's a soul that can um, not hide from tension. Yeah. But, but embrace what he calls enriching tensions. Yes. That's his phrase. Enriching tensions. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Enriching tensions. I love that. And and another, and this is going to become a question for you, Patricia, but another of his descriptive terms there is it's a soul that can receive different ideas even when they don't cohere. Yes. Even when you are opposed to some of them, you can nonetheless hold them in your mind. And I say that uh, on on the one hand, you and I probably both have the model of John Cobb. Uh, When you're in his presence, you get the sense that he can hold many ideas in his mind, even those that he doesn't necessarily agree with, but that he understands. He can see that point of view, even though that's not his. That's exactly right. And that includes the the darkness within us too. You know, we have yes. to be able to, yes. to make peace with the darkness within us and hold that in this creative tension with our better mm-hmm. selves and to be compassionate toward that shadow side of ourselves. Um, that's one of the great lessons I've learned about that soul philosophy, uh-huh. mm-hmm. which is, you know, um, the name of one of my books and uh, because yeah learning that self-compassion and the darkness and and as you say holding competing ideas and not pushing them away uh it takes a really large soul to do that very often yeah now i think in, in this cultural climate we are all so many of us you i so many are trying to be fat souls in a politically charged cultural climate where there can be people, I'm sure you have parishioners, people in your community, and we don't get, we don't need to name names or go into the specific divisions, but you know what I'm talking about. Sure. How how does a fat soul hold in her or his mind not, oh, only so, their, not, not yeah. only their ideas and, and their values, which you may find repugnant sometimes, mm. but them, but them in a spirit of, of, of generosity of spirit. I don't pretend to have the answer to that, but I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts on the relevance of fat soul philosophy to dealing with um, radical cultural divisions mm. um, in our I time. Think, yes, I think it is the the... The, the fun it is the answer to the problem that's what we need to be doing is mm-hmm. if we could if we could enlarge our compassion 
to mm-hmm. embrace the other, not necessarily their ideas, um, mm-hmm. which are in fact repugnant <laughs> today. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's just mm-hmm. really repugnant. But to, um, you know, to embrace. I mean, I have you know a brother who is just completely on the other side of things than I am, mm-hmm. but I still love him. Uh-huh. And so you know, it's just treating them, treat all people like members of your family that you can. Mm-hmm completely disagree but embrace them mm. love. and um i i find that we're not doing that but we're doing that at church i mean we're doing it in certain places i think in my church we we all do that we don't have the cultural divisions that you might imagine um and um so yeah fat soul is the the way to go <laughs> I wish we would have more people with larger souls, but we do not at the present time, but we will. And we do have them, but there, I think a lot of the younger folks uh, are just have huge souls. And I just have so much hope in the, in the younger generation. I really do. Some of us older folks are all, you know, we're just so <laughs> stuck in our own space. We'll never change. But I think the younger people are malleable and their souls are more, expansive and resilient and flexible yeah yeah i do i you know being an older person myself i'm kind of hoping that old souls can have can have size of soul too but i do think (laughs) there's there's the problem of shriveling Uh, (laughs) some people can have so much life experience that they become afraid and 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 Oh, is it that true, Jay? It's out, out of fear. You get a shriveled soul um, oh. out of fear, I think. But um, that so. is so, you've really nailed it. We always mm-hmm. think that we're going to grow up and be wiser and have bigger souls. And we mm-hmm. do. And that's one of the wonderful things about going older. But at the same time, there is that temptation to shrivel mm-hmm. in fear and to get too stuck in our our ways, you know, mm-hmm. unless I find it within myself as I grow older, you know, I think, oh, wow, that's really an uncompassionate <laughs> thought you just had. <laughs> so it's, yeah, we have to watch that as we get older. There are benefits of going older, but there's that, there's also the downside of that. Yeah. So you think, you think God's a pretty fat soul, huh? I do. I do. And um, otherwise I, I could not be doing what I do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, John Cobb has recently written a book called Salvation. Oh. And the basic thesis of the book is that one of the most important teachings of Jesus um, was to love your enemy. There you go. There you go. That's the perfect example. Yeah. And 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 I just I find that that rings true and also a challenge, if I'm honest, you know. Yeah. Um, so maybe if a really fat soul, remember how Marjorie Suhaki said to, to forgive people is not to like them, but it's to, it's to, will, it's to will their well-being, to will she, their well-being. You say that in your I, book. I rely upon her for that. Absolutely. She changed my whole view on forgiveness. But just think of that term for a second, love your enemy. I mean, have you ever thought about the tension within that? That that is that is the most beautiful love in the world, right there, because it's fat soul love. It you are expanding yourself to include the enemy, and that creates that contrast, that 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 dissonance, that 
that that beauty needs for the intensity of the harmony. Mm-hmm. It's so easy, you know, just loving your, you know, spouse or your daughter or whatever is, well, that's easy. That's not so hard, right? But when we start pushing the envelope and moving out to people who may vote for Trump or someone like that, you know, I mean, so, I mean, there are, you know, you, you, you don't understand them. It's just completely out. You cannot understand them, but you love them. And, but, and then they're of course not the enemy, but I'm just saying when we get to the enemy, which we, we can see that going on today, um, we, we have to realize that there's a real tension there. And the only way around the divisions is to well, do what you often say, Jay. I love it when you, you refer to God as deep listening. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been one of the themes that I have followed you through the years in your books mm-hmm. and in your in your writing is mm-hmm. this idea of listening. And mm-hmm. I remember once when you came out to uh, visit Ron and me, we were you were going to be preaching at uh, for an occasion and I'm not preaching, but speaking at an occasion. And um, the first thing you did was sit down in a Chinese restaurant with us. And you just wanted to listen. You just want to find out more about us. You just wanted Mm -hmm. to soak up, you you know, it was just, and I remember how confounded I was. I wasn't prepared to talk about myself. Mm -hmm. I was prepared to hear you spout wonderful wisdom. But you just wanted to listen, and that just always made an impact on me, that that is the model that will change the world right there. And that's the view of God that we desperately need right now. I think I, I got that. I, was, I am influenced, as you know, by Buddhism. Yes. And, oh. and I'm, in, I'm influenced by um, meditation. And I, I see the purpose of meditation is not to arrive at another place or have an ecstatic experience. It's simply to be here now, but in a non-judgmental way. Mm-hmm. It's to momentarily bracket questions of judgment and, and just listen, just listen. And it takes me back to Jesus is uh, judge not lest ye be judged. Uh, so the kind of judge not consciousness. There needs certainly there's a place in life for the judge not consciousness. Um, and don't you? That, you know, you just made me think just a second. You just made me realize that isn't meditation one of the most fat soul activities you can participate in? Which, yes. you're, pre- you're preaching to this fat soul choir. <laughs> <laughs> it I is. You just enlightened me again and again, Jay. <laughs> it just never ends. <laughs> Well, in, the, in the house of fat soul, there are so many rooms. <laughs> yes, but yes. I think one of them is that is that listening. I think. Yeah. Um, in terms of your own pilgrimage, Patricia, you know, here you are, and you've just published a book and um, beauty and process theology, and I hope everybody listening to this podcast will go purchase that book immediately. And by the way, I think it's very inexpensive. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, Jay, just to let you know, it's the, I don't know if the paperback is out yet. It should be any day now, but I know that the Kindle is out. The Kindle now. is. Yeah. I, yeah. Have, I have the Kindle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but what, what's, where are you going? What's, what's the, do you have a sense of what the future holds for you? 
in the direction in which you're moving? And, and maybe not, but, but well, do you? I, I'm not real sure. Um, you know, I like all, everybody else right now, I've been, you know, kind of traumatized by all that's happening. And, you know, I think uh, sometimes I just feel like I don't have any more words. I don't know what mm -hmm. I, I, I can't even write. Uh, I, and whenever I have that ha happen, you know what I do? And you know what? I've, I've just gone back to my first love, which is music. I, mm -hmm. I return to music when the trauma gets too great, mm -hmm. which, okay, when RB, you know, RBG died, mm -hmm. <laughs> that was, that was it. Uh, that mm -hmm. was trauma. That was so traumatic. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what I did? I just went and practiced my guitar for, you know, like hours. I, mm -hmm. I just started learning the classical guitar. Um, I had to give up the saxophone, which I used to play. That I majored in music. Uh, but I have glaucoma pretty intensively, and I, I can't play an instrument anymore that involves, you know, yeah, a wind instrument. So I, I recently started the classical guitar, and that's all I want to do. But I think that's only, it's just like immersing myself in that form of beauty. Um, and hopefully what will come out will be, you know, I, I just want to keep writing the best I can. I just feel my words are inadequate. It's mm -hmm. so massive and traumatic out there. Um, so, uh, but I will keep, I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing and see what happens. I just, and that's where this whole idea of trusting and beauty comes mm -hmm. into it. Mm -hmm. I I just have to trust in beauty that mm -hmm. you know it will come it will mm -hmm. come so I'm sure you feel the same way you trust in beauty yeah yeah I, sometimes I think that faith in God and trust in beauty are two sides of a single coin and you know I like the yeah. way you define beauty in um, you define beauty as harmonious intensity. And, and there can be a feeling, a sense that there's something wide and deep in which we're included. That's both a deep harmony and, and maybe a deep vitality, a deep aliveness, a deep yeah. intensity, yeah. A, a deep beauty. And, and I, th I think faith has something to do with that. Now, Patricia, uh, we're, we're approaching the end of our talk, but you just mentioned music. I can't, you know, I've got to ask you a couple, one or two more questions about that. So you grew up, you were a music major and Yes. Oh, and yes. You saxophone? Yes. Can you believe it? I was a saxophone <laughs> performance major and I really? played a solo with a symphony and every, I was, you know, at one time I was really good, but then I let it go once I, once I started you know, with my theology and everything, writing, I, I kind of let it go. But now I'm returning to music. Is, but it's always been classical music for me because of, I guess, because of that background. But um, I just return to the, my old friends of Bach and, you know, Mozart and Schumann. And um, unfortunately, saxophone was invented too late for those. Uh, but I could play transcriptions of them. And I played art music from, you know, uh, Paris, which was the, I guess you could say the classical music for a legit saxophonist. I was not a jazz player, 
played a little bit, but never really took to it. I always liked the classical. Um, so, but I always wanted to play a stringed instrument. So mm -hmm. I picked up the classical guitar and now I can play a little Bach and it's just so enlivening to my own spirit. And you've, uh, written, you've written beautiful essays in, in Open Horizons. I'm thinking of one on Mozart right now. Oh yeah. Um, and you wrote one on Dave Brubeck, as I recall, remember? Oh yes, now that's one, oh, well, I do like jazz. I just but, don't but, play but it, but I love Brubeck. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. And, and you know, jazz has often been used as a wonderful metaphor for mm -hmm. process theology. So, yeah. um, you know, I love the whole, and I know you've written so much on music. And what I appreciate about what you're doing in Open Horizons is that you're really expanding music to include, you know, uh, the pop music and, and music of the of pop culture and and things that are totally new to me that I don't have any framework for. So you're like expanding my mind. And um, that's what I love about what you're doing. You're, you're, you're really, you're helping people like me who are in the arts because you, you open process thought to the creatives, the, to the cultural creatives, not just to the thinkers who are going to be doing, you know, traditional theology, but to creating. Well, I think. Uh, that, uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Oh, but, you know, Jay, it just dawned on me too. That is another example of that. So the, the yeah. way that you are expanding process theology through Open Horizons, um, mm -hmm. the way you're reaching out to you know, kind of drawing in people, other base. I mean, think how enriching the contrasts are with Rabbi Artson, with Farhan Shah and from the Muslim faith, the, the Buddhism, uh, naturalism. You have really opened up our, uh, you know, the soul of process theology. So thank you for that. Well, and, and thank you for letting me be a part of it. Well, you know, uh, you and Bruce Epperly have both lifted up the word adventure as essential to the process movement. And when I think of beauty, I think of you, and I think of a couple of others for whom that's a prominent theme. Sandra Labarsky comes to mind. But when I think of adventure, I kind of think of you and, and Bruce uh, as two who have really lifted that word up as an invitation for us to follow and somehow to understand uh, the, the, a life in faith as a life of adventure. Um, oh, yeah. That, that's the opening, that's the opening. It is and, an adventure and yeah. I just, and we need that right now, don't we? We really need that yeah. sense. And that's why I think, you know, process theology is, I'm really excited about it. I, mean, I think it's exactly what we need in this time because you know, as I said, these are traumatic times, climate change and the rise of authoritarianism and process theology is more relevant now than ever. I mean, if you think about it, if our view of God is an authoritarian monarch in the sky, then we will be drawn to authoritarian leaders and tyrants. And so theology really, really matters. And um, we live in a postmodern age and we have to choose between um, deconstructive postmodernism and constructive postmodernism, which is another name for process thought. And the very word constructive pushes back against the destructive free-for-all 
of all alternative realities and the overthrow of values and decency. So process thought is so exciting to me and that it offers a large soul generosity that has a foundation in reality and that values truth, beauty, and goodness that could save our planet. So these are dispiriting times, but there is hope. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes a lot, for me, it comes through process theology. Mm -hmm. Well, you're so important in process theology. You're essential to the movement. Uh, I think it's a movement, Patricia. You know, I think it's, it's in process and yeah. hopefully it's a multi-generational movement and hopefully it's multi-racial, multi-ethnic, yeah. multi-faith. Yes. Uh, I, I, but we do what we can do. And you certainly have done so much for so many. Oh, thank you so much like for giving me the opportunity. I, when I think about Open Horizons, I, I'll often say, just just do a search for Patricia Adams Farmer. <laughs> just, just read her essays. You, you'll, you'll find something. You'll find something that'll help you, move you on. So many blessings. And thank you so much for today. Thank you. It's been a, and, it's been a joy. All right. Okay. Take care. God bless you. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting Cobb.Institute. That's Cobb.Institute and clicking on the donate button.